Turn there, turn to Daniel chapter 5. And I I hope our time in this book of God's Word has been really profitable for you and has been um, insightful and exciting because uh, these are just wonderful, wonderful events that we've uh, read about and there are prophecies yet to come. Really, this chapter and the next deal with events in Daniel's life. But in chapter 7 through the end, they are the visions that God has given to Daniel for them that we're going to take a look at in the succeeding weeks ahead. But in chapter 5, we are introduced to the end of the Babylonian Empire. We are shown how it came to its demise. Now, the book of Daniel is not written in chronological sequence, chronological order. What has taken place in chapter 5 is some 70 years since chapter 1. It is amazing, isn't it? When we read through the Bible, we just sort of read these passages, read these chapters, read these verses, and we think they just happen immediately after what has preceded. But 70 years has already gone by between chapter 1 and now in chapter 5. And on the throne is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar. And Belteshazzar is a young man, but he is not a man who has been attentive to what has transpired in the history of his family or in the history of the kingdom that he now has a part in representing. In verse 1, it says, Belteshazzar, king, gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, wood and stone. First of all, it's important for us to take a pause here just for a moment. You'll notice that at the front end of this chapter is reference to the golden goblets, the cups, the vessels that were taken from the house of God in Jerusalem, the temple. We read about that in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, when Nebuchadnezzar took the city of Jerusalem, he also took the festival goblets, the vessels that were used in the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the temple. He brought them into his own country and to his own, the temple of his own gods, and placed them there. But from that point to the present, they have never been touched. They have never been utilized. They've never been uh, used for anything in terms of Babylon's, Babylon's observance until now. And so at the front end of the book is the taking of these goblets. From an outsider's point of view, we would think that now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has fallen prey to the Babylonian gods, and thus 
these articles from the temple itself are taken from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We would be remiss in thinking that, and we would not have been reading Daniel chapter 1 very carefully because that passage tells us that God had allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come into the city of Jerusalem and take it captive and to take the vessels. This was an act of God's judgment upon the people. But Belshazzar has done something extraordinary, something that not even Nebuchadnezzar or his successors have done. The word father, when it makes reference to Belshazzar being the son of, or Nebuchadnezzar being the father of Belshazzar, of course, in the ancient world, father could be a great-grandfather, grandfather, or a distant relative. That's why in the Brit HaDashah, uh, references made to Abraham, our father. He's our ancestor. He's our model. He's the one that we are to follow. So when the text says, Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father, it doesn't mean his immediate heir, but one of his succeeding heirs in the family of Nebuchadnezzar. And through the course of the Babylonian history, no one has tampered with these golden vessels of God until now. It's almost as if Belshazzar is now defying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, it would have been better if he had just left, left well enough alone but rather he would pick a fight with the God of the universe. And what he didn't realize is that there was now going to be an accounting for what he was about and what he had done. We also ought to take a pause for a moment and just make reference to the fact that for hundreds of years, scholars have disputed the authenticity of the book of Daniel on the basis of this chapter. Because for hundreds of years, Belshazzar, his name, had never appeared in any documents or any monuments that had been built or constructed or written. And so it was thought that this was a fictitious character until around 1852, 1854, when a British archaeologist, J.G. Taylor, had been digging in the ruins of Iraq or ancient Babylon and came across a number of cylinders. And among these cylinders were statements about Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabonidus, when he came to the throne, he was sort of a rebel among the Babylonian kings. Because all the predecessors worshipped the god of Babylon who is known as Marduk. And his central temple was located in Babylon. But Nabonidus had an affinity for the moon god. And he wanted to construct a temple to him. And so in Haran and in southern Babylon, he constructed a series of temples to this God, representative of the moon. And these cylinders made reference to Nabonidus's construction efforts in building these temples to the moon God of the Babylonians. And on those cylinders, it says that Nabonidus had entrusted the city of Babylon to his son, Belshazzar. And thus, for the first time, 1850s or so, 1854, 
was the name of Belshazzar discovered and that in conjunction with his residence in Babylon and his serving as ruler over Babylon. And so now we know that Nabonidus was the son of, or I should say Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. Nabonidus, who was not in tune with Marduk, moved out of the city of Babylon. He actually set up residence in the southern portion of Babylon or present-day Iraq near the Persian Gulf area where it would be cooler and more lush. And there he set up a temple to the god of the moon. And he, rather than reign from Babylon, the central palace, he entrusted Babylon to his son, Belshazzar. It's one of the reasons why in this chapter, when a hand appears behind Belshazzar, writing on the wall, and when he calls upon his counselors to interpret, to read and to interpret what was written, he said, if anyone could interpret these words and read them, he would make him third in the Babylonian kingdom. Usually it would be, you would be made second to the king. But here he says, you'll be made third to the king. Why? Because Belshazzar was second to the king and thus could only reward such a one under him, which would make that individual third below the king. So it fits what these archaeologists have now discovered, fits very much with what Daniel has written. And it just proves the adage that over time, when people have disputed the authenticity, the accuracy, the trustworthiness of God's word, if we just wait long enough and just dig deep enough and in the right places, we find out that God's word has always been demonstrated to be true about whatever it writes. And thus, with reference to Belshazzar, he certainly is a man of history, did exist, did reign in Babylon underneath his father who reigned from his palace in southern Babylon and was able to reward one at least up to third in the kingdom, which isn't so bad, behind, behind him. Now what is also interesting is that the text tells us that Belshazzar threw this party, this banquet for thousands of his nobles. Archaeologists, by the way, have dug up the palace of the kings in Babylon. And they found a room, not certain what it would be used for, but they suspect it was used for banquets as described here in this passage. We don't know for sure, but this room was 80 feet wide. Now, the distance from home plate to first base is 90 feet. So this is a pretty wide room pretty wide. Just, just to put it in perspective. Of course, if you don't know baseball, well, I just question whether or not you're truly an American. <laughs> you know, baseball, mom, and apple pie, right? 90 feet, but it was about 80 feet wide, and it was 136 feet long. So that's a pretty good-sized banquet hall. They also found that there was a raised area where they would believe the king or the dignitaries would sit. And behind this raised area was a niche in the wall. And while most ancient palaces would have frescoes and paintings 
and tiles depicting the successes of the kings, this particular wall that they had found in this room was a blank white plaster wall. And thus it appears, if indeed this is the room in which Belshazzar held his banquet, that it could seat thousands of people as they would mingle and come in and out. It did have a raised area where Belshazzar and his select individuals could sit. In fact, it says in the text that when Belshazzar started drinking, the phrases that he was drinking from the goblets and drinking all this wine in the sight of all the people. And so the impression is he is raised up so all could see him, but further he was doing this to draw attention to himself. And he began to drink and to drink and to drink. And he began to embarrass the other dignitaries as he was losing control of his abilities and his senses. And it's then that right behind him, so that none could miss it, up on the raised platform and right behind the king, if indeed it was in this room, a hand appears from out of nowhere and begins to write on the wall. And it writes the words, many, many, tekel, upfarsen. The word mene is the word for, it's Aramaic word for numbers. And so it's repeated, numbered, numbered. And tekel is the word for weighed, or assessed, or judged, or evaluated. Numbered, numbered, and assessed, or evaluated. U for upfarsen is like the Hebrew vi, which is the conjunction and. And farsen means end divided or fallen. And farsen is not very different from the word for Persian. And it would be the Medes and the Persians that would bring about the destruction of Belshazzar. So perhaps there is a pun on the word upfarsen. When this takes place, the crowd gets quiet. And attention is now front and center on these words. Whereas Belshazzar all of his life had been blind to the message of God as it was presented to Nebuchadnezzar, his father, grandfather, and Nebuchadnezzar who responded to that revelation given to him and was humbled and confessed his sin and repented and acknowledged the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Belshazzar failed to learn from the past or from his family. I forget who it was, but in a rather cynical way, had said the only thing we learn from history is that we never learn anything from history. And how true that is. We repeat the same mistakes over and over again, whether as nations or whether as individuals. Take inventory of your own life. How often has God had to have reminded us of this moment, and yet we fall prey to it time and time again? And there is a truth to the fact that we oftentimes do not learn from our past. And there is a truth that the one thing we do learn consistently from history is that we don't learn very much from it. Belshazzar certainly did not learn much from history. He had been blind to the work of God 
as demonstrated through Daniel time and time again for his own grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. But not now. Now, he would not be blind. He would see the hand of God who would inscribe on the wall. And whereas he may have been deaf to the words of God presented by Daniel and others, no doubt, the word of God would not fall deaf on his ears this time as Daniel is brought in to tell the king what the words say and what they mean. Like before, the counselors of Nebuchadnezzar and the counselors of Babylon and now of Belshazzar are not adequate for the task. It will take Daniel once again. Now Daniel's about 90 years old. Remember, this is 70 years later. Daniel was taken into captivity when he was perhaps as young as 15. Would make him somewhere around 85 years old. Why didn't Belshazzar send for him right away? It may be because he simply was resistant to this Hebrew who had been taken captive by the Babylonians earlier. Whatever the reason, it may be that Daniel is now in some kind of semi-retirement. He's an older man, to be sure. And he was respected greatly in Nebuchadnezzar's, during Nebuchadnezzar's time, and perhaps subsequent to his time. And thus, it's very interesting, isn't it, as you read further in this chapter, when all eyes are on what is written, and all counselors cannot provide the answer, his mother walks in to the banquet. Perhaps it is his grandmother who is married to Nebuchadnezzar. She's not at the banquet, probably embarrassed by how Belshazzar is conducting himself. Perhaps, perhaps somewhat angered by his failure to respond to what his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had learned about God and truth and about Daniel. It's interesting that the queen, her name is not given, easily walks into the banquet, easily gets audience with Belshazzar, must have been a family member, and when she makes reference to Daniel, she says, there is a servant in the kingdom, Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar. I think it's interesting that she makes reference to him by his Hebrew name. Remember, the most, one of the most important verses, the first, second verse, which tells us God's in control, but the second most important verse, perhaps, verse 8 of chapter 1, Daniel says, that he would not defile himself. Now at the end of his life, how is he known by the queen, but by his Hebrew name? He did not defile himself. And he did not fall prey, even at the end of his life now, to the Babylonian ways and Babylonian culture. And thus he was still known by his Hebrew name. Because he was still known by his faithfulness to his own God. And thus when she walks in, she says there is a man in the kingdom, almost as if Belshazzar doesn't even know that he exists, doesn't even remember. In a way, he reminds me of Rehoboam. You know who Rehoboam was? The son of Solomon. And when Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was divided. 
Solomon's kingdom was divided. And rather than, isn't it Rehoboam? Do I have these names right? Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And it was Rehoboam who failed to listen to his elder counselors, but rather listened to his younger counselors who told him to raise up the taxes, make life more difficult financially. You remember under Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel had grown exponentially. The temple itself was a monumental structure. It cost a great deal of money. And people were giving large amounts to its construction. They were giving much of their time to its building. Wood was being brought in from Lebanon so that there were cedars. Gold was being mined and was being brought to the temple. And road systems were being laid out so people could get to the temple. And now that the temple was built and it had come to an end and Solomon had now passed away, Rehoboam takes the throne and his older, elder advisors tell him, don't put too much more pressure, taxation, and stress on the people. But his younger counselors said, don't listen to them but rather make things even more difficult and exact greater amounts from them. Rehoboam listens to his younger counselors and loses the kingdom. Belshazzar reminds me of Rehoboam because he didn't pay attention to the oldest counselor among his counselors, perhaps, and his wisest counselor, And the one that had been over and over and over again interpreting the dreams and even stating the dreams, he ignored Daniel. And when the queen walks in, it's almost as if she's scolding him. You ought to have remembered this man. And you ought to have not bothered with the rest of the counselors, but immediately gone to him because he can interpret the dream for you. Daniel is brought in. And Daniel's phrasing is very interesting, too. Because when he stands before the king, he does not use the usual greeting. Oh, king, live forever. It's almost as if he doesn't like Belshazzar, does not respect him. But he'll respond to him in an adequate sort of way. He also knows, having seen the handwriting on the wall, he knows immediately what it means. And he knows Belshazzar is not going to live forever. In fact, he's not going to live very much longer at all. For tonight, his life is going to be taken from him. It reminds me of Yeshua's own story found, I think it's in Luke chapter 12, where a man builds a barn and stores all of his stuff and doesn't know that tonight his life is going to end. And thus it is always wise for us to store up treasures that will last forever and not those that will be temporary and that we will not have at the end of our days. And so Daniel tells him, as I mentioned, those words, numbered, numbered, means your sin has been taken note of. And there are a series of them coming to a climax with your taking of the vessels of gold, 
that were taken from the temple and using them to honor the gods of Babylon. No other predecessors ever dared to do that. And thus, his sin is numbered, is noted, and it has come up into the presence of God. He tells him, secondly, they are weighed and they are assessed. God has evaluated them, and he's come to a conclusion. And the conclusion is, your kingdom will be divided and taken from you. Belshazzar is ignorant of what's happening presently right on his own territory. As I said, his father Nabonidus had gone south. He had marshaled troops against the Medes and the Persians, but he lost in the battles against them. And now the Persian Medes and the Persians have come right to the gates of Babylon. Xenophon, the Greek historian, Herodotus, even Josephus make reference to how the city of Babylon was taken. Through the city of Babylon flowed the Euphrates River, which divided the city in half. As I told you, the walls around Babylon were enormous. They were 80 feet thick, I think I had mentioned, 360 feet high. They surrounded the city for some 56 odd miles or so. It was a huge city, and the width of those walls were such that four dual-drawn chariots, dual-horse-drawn chariots, could be uh, driven right on the tops of the walls of Babylon. Gates allowed the water of of the Euphrates to flow through the city. As long as the gates were down, nobody would be coming in that way. The stores of food that were stored in Babylon could last for years. And thus they were able to withstand a siege for years. Keep in mind in Masada, right across from the Dead Sea, when the Roman army surrounded that mountain, the Jewish zealots were able to hold out for three years before the Romans could build a siege ramp to the very top, and then overtake the mountain fortress that Herod the Great had built as an escape route, as a vacation place, as a fortress, if ever he was attacked or attempts were made on his life. The only reason the Romans were able to dislodge the Jewish people in 70 AD was because they used Jewish slaves, Jewish captives, to build the siege ramp. And they knew that the Jewish people would not kill their own people. So they knew over time that ramp was going to be built. And the Romans would come over the walls and that they would be taken captive. And so the night before the Romans struck, there was a suicide pact made among the Jewish elders and all the children, women, and men were slaughtered that night by their own hands, except for a couple And as a result, the story has been told, and Josephus has recorded it, as others. At Babylon, they had enough stores that would last for years and years. They had the river flowing in. They had uh, areas that were terraced, and thus they could grow crops. And Belshazzar was just blind and deaf to what was about to happen. What the Medes and the Persians did was downstream. 
they built a tributary to divert the waters of the Euphrates. And while Belshazzar was partying, the water level of the Euphrates was dropping. Failure was made to lower the gates, and the troops of the Medes and Persians entered the city of Babylon without losing a soul, without waging a fight. They just marched in under the gates, entered the city, surrounded it, began to burn it down, eventually captured Belshazzar and his party and had killed him. That's what Daniel said is the meaning of those words. That's what Daniel said was about to take place. And that's what indeed occurred. There are a couple of interesting facets about this. Daniel is rewarded, interestingly enough. He is made third in the kingdom. It'd be short-lived, of course. And he was given the robe and the necklace, the gold uh, amulet that would be put around his neck. Perhaps the last effort of Belshazzar to at least keep his word. What's really wonderful about that event is that Daniel says, I don't want any of your rewards. I don't want the robe. I don't want the amulet. I don't want the gold. Reminds me of Abraham, doesn't it? When Abraham rescues Lot and the kings that were rescued said, we will give you, you know, uh, some of the spoils that we took. And Abraham said, I don't want any of them. It's a very noble and righteous attitude of being circumspect about service to God. And the need, in the case of Daniel, I think there's a great lesson here, of his willingness to serve, not for profit or finances, but simply because God had called him and laid this upon his heart. And thus he proclaims the truth without any recognition or with any desire to be recognized or to receive anything from the hand of Belshazzar. Of course, Daniel is going to serve the Medes and the Persians as well, Cyrus and Darius, and we'll read about that in the next chapter. But Babylon comes to an end. And that in accordance with God's word, spoken through Daniel. And that in the context of the taking of the vessels from Jerusalem. And one other thing we shouldn't miss, and that is they were worshiping, as it says, gods of gold, silver, brass, iron. What is it? Stone and clay or something? The same elements that you find in the statue and in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the head of gold, the upper part of the torso made of silver, the uh, middle part of the legs made of bronze, and then the legs and feet made of iron, partly iron, partly clay, and then the stone that hits the toes that destroys the same, you know, metals. In a way, it's as if Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar was a worshiper of power and of might as exhibited in these nations. That would be powerful and that would be mighty. So what is the lesson? Let me just bring this home a couple of things. Number one, sin is never static. Sin and the effects of sin are never momentary. In fact, we know that from Genesis The day that you sin, he doesn't say, God does not say you will die. 
He says, the day you sin dying, you will die. Sin is not static. It makes our life more and more miserable. It works at destroying, not just bringing destruction. It works at making our life hard, not just bringing it to an end. Perhaps it wouldn't be so bad if our life just ended. But what sin does is it just keeps bursting itself upon us. It keeps pounding against us. It keeps bringing us down to a point of destruction. And it's a hurtful process that we endure over time. And so for Belshazzar, the kingdom was crumbling around him. And his own life was falling apart. Because sin destroys, and it does so in a process of pain and anguish. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 1. It leads to our, from one sin to the next, to the next, in a downward spiral of wrongdoing that leads to more and more pain. The wages of sin is death. Whether we are believers or not, sin is never static in our lives. It will always break, hurt, harm, and be a painful, destructive process. The second thing about sin, not only is it not, never static, it's also never silent. We always are aware. We know what's about to take place, but for some unexplicable reason, we do it anyway. Belshazzar had all of this information before him. He chose to ignore it. Even though the enemy was at the gate, he chose to have a party. What sin does is not only painful, but it makes us stupid. It makes us dull. It makes us blind. And we don't really see what is at work within us and around us. We need the voice of God. You know, uh, Karl Marx said that religion was the opiate of the people, did he not? That it lulls us to sleep, and as a result, then makes us ignore what's going on around us. And we're sort of living like pie in the sky. But he was completely wrong. It is not religion that is the opiate of the people. It is sin that is the opiate of the people. It is sin that blinds us to the truth. It is sin that makes us deaf to the voice of God and to wise counsel. It is the work of sin in our midst, in our hearts, in our innermost being that dulls our senses and makes us, things, makes us think things are different than what they really are. We think everything's going well. How often have you shared your faith with someone? How often have you spoken to someone to tell them the way of truth and they simply say, listen, my life is fine. I'm not worried. That's what Belshazzar was saying. Why? Because sin 
is an opiate. And it dulls us to the fact that we are being numbered and that our lives are being assessed and they are being judged and our lives will be found wanting. And like the kingdom of Babylon which fell, our lives will fall to the judgment of God unless we listen to the voice of God as Daniel pronounced it. Unless we are responsive to the truth of God's word. Unless we cry out to him recognizing our sin and confessing it before him and asking for his forgiveness. To be sure, we can't even repent right because of the effect of sin in our lives. The glory is that God can forgive right and perfectly. We can't. So when we come, we say things like, Lord, help our unbelief. Help me in my repentance because it is never perfectly done. For we can't do anything perfectly right because sin is so pervasive and so powerful. It is not static. And it does render us foolish before the things of the world. But if there's another lesson about sin, and I've already alluded to it, is that sin will be judged. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. Sin is a violation of his character. Sin is a violation of his holiness. Sin is a violation of his intention for us. He made us in his own image, that we would walk before him and thus be, as it were, blameless in his sight. Sin has thrown a monkey wrench in all of that design. And thus, we stand on a precipice of God's judgment. Peter says, uh, what is that passage, Mitch, maybe you can help me with this, where Peter makes reference to that even the believers are saved by the skin of their teeth or something is the phrase that Peter says. If the righteous are saved, how is, you know, he makes this comparison of just how slimly we have experienced God's grace and God's salvation. I know none of us like to reflect on these realities, but if you're going to read the whole counsel of God, we have to remember that there is a day of reckoning that will come. In fact, there is an entire book devoted to it. And that is, of course, the book of Revelation. That's the theme of the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. What does it reveal to us about him? He's coming to judge. That's what it reveals. He's going to come. Look at Revelation chapter 19. And when he comes, it says the blood of the inhabitants are like up to the horse's bridles. And there's all this warlike imagery. Because when he came as a child born in Bethlehem. And as he himself says in the synagogue in Nazareth, reading from Isaiah 61, he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He came to proclaim the grace of God that would be exhibited in his presence and in his provision for our sin. When he comes the next time, 
the, the, the completion of Isaiah 61 will be read because he stopped with those words when he said, well, let me read them to you. Because in Isaiah, when he stood in the synagogue, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But what does the next phrase say? He didn't read that phrase. But the next phrase says, and the day of vengeance of our God. When he came the first time, He came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the grace of God that we could all be the recipients of, that we might have life everlasting and be forgiven. The next time he comes, he will come to proclaim the vengeance of our Lord. When will that day be? Don't know, but it will come. Belshazzar did not think it was coming and it was already upon him. And he was already consuming his kingdom. What an opportunity we have right now during the acceptable year of the Lord, during this era of our time, to receive what Messiah has provided for us. It's receiving him. It's knowing him. It's responding to him. It's acknowledging our failures before him. It is turning over our life to him. It is allowing him to cleanse us. It is allowing him to forgive us. It is allowing him to make us new creations in Messiah. It is allowing him to give us of his spirit that we might be beings who live more like the image of God in whose image we have been created. It is by giving our lives over to him that the process of being conformed into the image of his son occurs. It is by coming to him that we have the promise of eternal life. It is not by coming to Beth Aria. It is not by attending this Bible study or that. It is by coming to him. And so the note I want to leave us with this morning is that he is the one that can forgive us and the only one that can forgive us of our sin. Do not be like Belshazzar, but rather be like Daniel and countless others who would not be defiled by the world or by the teachings of the world that would have us think things are okay when they are not. But rather be like Daniel who is ready to acknowledge the king of the universe as his God, to serve him wherever he would be found, and to be faithful to him. That's what God wants from each and every one of us, is that we come to him. We want to do what Messiah said, which is to build our lives on stone, not on sand. To build on stone means to build on the rock, to build on Messiah, and for him to be the cornerstone of our lives as well as the capstone. Let's pray.
Our God and Father, we thank you that you have provided for us. Help us, Lord, not to be like Belshazzar. Help us, Father, not to be blind to where we stand before you on our own merit. But, Father, may we come to you because your grace is more than enough. It is fully sufficient to save, to redeem, to restore, and to cleanse. So whatever our need this day, for some there may be some here who have never acknowledged Yeshua as Messiah, and their lives are hanging in the balance. I pray by your spirit you would move on their hearts and that they would, in the depth of their being, cry out to you that you would forgive them of their sin. For some of us who know you, this week has been a terrible week of our walk with you. Not just situations and circumstances in our life, but we have not been what we ought to have been as individuals who are to be godly and to live lives of godliness. And thus we have sinned against you. Father, we are reminded in your word that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So may we take advantage of your promise to us. And then, Father, we are always reminded of your great love for us, for you so love us that you sent your Son into our world, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, clings to him, relies upon him, would not perish, but would have everlasting, fullness, joyous life in you. May that be true of each and every one of us here this morning. We pray in Messiah's name.